Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. You might remember the last time I had the privilege of opening God's Word with you. Um, we looked together at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And tonight we want to look at verses 3 through 7. Um, and in the last section, which is obviously the first verses of 1 Peter, Peter is really dr- addressing an important question. He was addressing the question, who are we as Christians? What, what's our identity? What, what defines us? And the answer Peter gave was this, our identity as Christians is this, we are elect exiles. That's what it means to be a Christian. You are elect and you are an exile. And you'll notice as we read verses 3 through 7 that he's really going to be just kind of developing that a step further and shifting from the question of what's your identity as a Christian to how does that identity affect your daily life, especially when your life involves suffering. So we'll be looking at verses 3 through 7, but we'll start reading in verse 1 so we can just feel the flow of Peter's uh, argument. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Let's ask His blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Scriptures, which are always relevant and always timely. And we pray that they would speak powerfully, that these verses, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, would speak powerfully to us and show us, Lord, what we have in Christ, what it means to be saved, and how that truth frees us to walk with joy in the midst of suffering. I pray that you would overcome my limitations and help me to speak clearly, help all of us to listen carefully. And be with us now through your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but um, I have found much of the last 12 months to be unsettling. And based on my Facebook feed, I don't think I'm the only person in the world to feel that way. Um, We have been through a lot in the last year um, around the world as a nation, 
even here in West Michigan, our own community and city. And what seems to just pervade um, our society right now is a sense of uncertainty. In fact, it's kind of become a cliche. If you've watched any commercial, right, in 2020, every, every company in America has said, in these uncertain times, you know, we want to be with you, whether they're selling soap or stock bonds or whatever, you know, they think our product will help you through in these uncertain times. Um, as cliche as that is coming from corporate America, it's tapping into something that is very real. Many of us feel like we are living in uncertain times. And... It feels like we are standing on, on shifting sands and like all of the people and the institutions and everything we've put our trust in is turning out to be hollow and empty. And I think for a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, that uncertainty often drifts into anxiety. And one of the things that we can be anxious about, particularly as the church, is this. We, we kind of ask ourselves, maybe you found yourself asking this question, well, what if everything we've kind of been through isn't just a 2020 thing? What if this chaos, this division, this uncertainty just becomes more and more a part of our lives? And what if all of the societal fracturing that we see going on around us is, is just the prelude to greater suffering as Christians? What if, what if we are on the cusp of more and more alienation and opposition and persecution as the church. Well, in our text today, the Apostle Peter is writing to Christians who were walking through alienation, opposition, and persecution. He was writing to Christians who were suffering, in fact, suffering is really what prompted Peter to, to write this letter. It's what this, this letter is most uh, directly concerned with. And he's writing to Christians who are experiencing a certain kind of suffering. There, there's all kinds of suffering, right? You can, you can lose uh, your job, you can get a disease, you can have tension in your family, but the kind of suffering that Peter is really focused on is suffering for your faith. Not because of your sin, not because you've done something wrong, but because you're trying to be faithful, and yet that faithfulness is actually bringing increased suffering into your life and into your world. What do you do with that? How do you walk faithfully and with joy when you're suffering because of your faithfulness? And so what's interesting to me is as Peter really begins his letter now in verse 3 of this chapter, is how he chooses to start if I was going to write a letter to uh, the wife of a, of, a, of a North Korean pastor who had just um, seen her husband hauled off to prison and I knew she was suffering, how would I start that letter? Well, here's how Peter starts it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And he goes on. What's he doing in these verses? Well, Peter is actually addressing the problem of pain with words of praise. He's, he's worshiping here. He's singing here. This is doxology. If I was reading this letter, 
I would be wondering, what, what is Peter doing exactly? And what is he seeing that I'm not seeing that's allowing him to come to this topic of suffering and persecution with joy and with worship and with singing? Well, as we read through these verses, verses 3 through 7, what we'll find is that Peter is seeing two precious truths that he wants us to see, that he wants us to be reminded of. Two things that are essential to the Christian life and are related to each other. They both have to do with salvation and with suffering and how the two connect. The first thing that Peter wants us to recognize and to remember is this. Our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. That's the first thing he reminds us of, really, verses 3 through 5. Our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. That's the the, the negative point, if we can put it that way, that he wants to make. The the other one that he wants to make, the second point, is, is really the flip side of that. Our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. Rather, our salvation is tried by our suffering. Those are the truths that Peter sets before us tonight. So let's look at those carefully together to see what God has to say to us in these verses. Firstly, our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. As we said, Peter begins this passage by delighting in and reminding us of the salvation that we have from God in Christ. Listen to how Peter Um, speaks about our salvation in verses 3 through 5. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, what has God done? He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. So even though not just Peter's readers, but Peter himself, right, everyone in the early church at this point is facing suffering and persecution for their faith, notice where Peter wants them to fix their attention. Pastor Dale talked about this in his sermon this morning. Where, where do we naturally look as fallen people? We look around us, right? If, if someone asks you, how, how was your week? How are you doing? You think back through your circumstances, and if you had a good week, you're, you're doing well. If you had a bad week, you're, you're not doing well, right? We look around us to gauge things. But Peter wants us to look up, to look at Christ, to look at the salvation that we have in Christ. And what he does really in these first three verses here, verses three through five, is he, he holds up our salvation and, and just considers it with us and marvels at what we have in our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's almost like uh, he's picking up a diamond. Kids, if you've ever seen a real diamond, maybe on your mom's wedding ring, or if you've been in the mall and seen all the diamonds at the jewelry store, as you kind of walk around a diamond or you turn it in the light, what happens? Well, it kind of sparkles and flashes. You see all different elements of it that you didn't see before. And that's kind of what Peter is doing here. He's holding up this diamond of our salvation and turning it in the light to see what we have in Christ. What does it mean to be saved? There's really three things that Peter draws our attention to. The first thing that Peter marvels at when he thinks about what it means that we have been saved is this. We have been born to a living hope. 
God has given us a living hope. We have this great gift that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So part of what it means to be a Christian, Peter is saying, is that you have been born again. You've received new life, and that new life flows out of the resurrection life of Jesus. Now that language of resurrection is really easy for us to to pass over because we like to use this language all the time and sometimes we miss what's actually meant here. And I think sometimes in our context we we can often focus on the cross, which we should, but we can focus on the cross almost to the exclusion of the resurrection. But they're, they're both essential and they work together. You see, it's, it's through the cross, Jesus' death, that the penalty for our sin is paid. That's essential. That's what he talks about in verse 2, where we are sprinkled with the blood of Christ. But then it is also through the resurrection that the power of sin and death is broken. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, went from a state of life to death on the cross. But then in his resurrection, what happened? He reversed death. He turned it back on itself and went from death to life. And what Peter is saying is when Christ went from death to life in his resurrection, that wasn't just a private act. He did that for us. And in his going from death to life, we have been brought from death to life. Through the power of the Spirit and according to God's perfect plan, Jesus went from death to life through His resurrection from the dead. And that reversal of things is what brings us into this living hope. We've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That new life, that new birth is designed to make us look back and see what Christ has done in His resurrection, but also look forward as we have a living hope A confidence that all that God has promised to give to us will actually happen. This is the first aspect that Peter wants to just remind us of and marvel at. If you're a Christian, you've gone from death to life. You have been born again to a living hope. But what is it that we hope for? What is it that is the object of our hope? Well, in verse 4... Peter says that one of the things we hope for as Christians is an inheritance. And notice how he describes that inheritance. Notice the words he chooses to use. Our inheritance, the inheritance that you have confidence of receiving one day because you've been born again, is an inheritance that is imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. Now just stop for a moment and, and let those adjectives, let those words sink in. You have absolute assurance of an inheritance coming to you that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Now what else in your life could you describe with those words? Nothing. Your house, your bank account, your health, your car. My car, you shouldn't, couldn't describe that way. Um, nothing that we have 
is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. Time breaks down everything. Sin ruins everything. If you inherit a beautiful house from a relative, given time, that house will decay. If you inherit a priceless piece of art, given time, that piece of art will decay. Everything in this world, everything we have is so transient. If you read Pastor Dale's uh, email on, on Friday, he actually went to this passage, I was so happy to see that, and, and made exactly this point. In the midst of so much uncertainty, we have something that is certain. There's nothing that we have in this life that can compare with this incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. And here's the important point that Peter is beginning to introduce to his readers. None of the suffering that you go through can tarnish this salvation. Do you see that? Remember, Peter is writing to people who are going through suffering. He'll talk later in the letter to um, wives who are married to non-Christian husbands, and they have to live with the tension of that. He'll write to citizens who are enduring an unjust and corrupt government. He will write to slaves who are in bondage to pagan masters. That's who's in view here. And to these people, Peter says, you have a salvation that is reserved in heaven for you. And nothing that you go through now, nothing that you experience can tarnish that salvation. God guarantees an, an incorruptible inheritance for us. The third thing that Paul or that Peter sees here in our salvation uh, is in verse 5 and really is an expansion of this other truth. It's not just that God has given us a living hope or that he guarantees us an incorruptible inheritance. He also guards us for that future salvation. So in other words, it's not just that heaven is reserved for us, we are also reserved for heaven. This is what Peter is saying in verse 5 when he talks about all who are in Christ as being those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now if you've been around Reformed churches long enough, you'll recognize, oh, Peter is talking about uh, the P of tulip, right? Perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints. We, we believe that truth. We hold that truth. It's in the back of your hymnals. But do you, do you grab hold of that truth in trials? Do you connect that to your suffering? Peter does. He reminds us here that our salvation really is secure because God is the one who saves us. God is the one, you'll notice, who has done everything in these verses so far. God is the one who gives new life and living hope. God is the one who reserves our inheritance in heaven. And God is the one who preserves us for that salvation through the gift of faith which he places in our hearts. So really you can think of what Peter is saying here as an echo of that famous verse, Romans 8.38. For I am persuaded, Paul wrote, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities
Thank you. Is that okay? There we go. Not even technology difficulties. <laughs> so the imagery that Paul, that Peter uses here, I'm going to say Paul half the time, just full disclosure. The imagery that Peter uses here when he says we are guarded by by, by God, is, is quite literally of a guard. That's what the word means, a, a bodyguard or a security guard, someone who protects and preserves something that is precious. And so notice here what is being guarded. We are, through faith. And notice who is our guard. Who is the one that ensures that everything you have been given will be preserved? It's God. God is the one who guards us. God is the one who watches over us. There is no greater assurance you can have then that nothing will separate you from God's love. Our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. That's a glorious truth, isn't it? And if we could really grab hold of that truth, I know we, we confess that, we say that, but we often don't feel it. I think if we could really feel the weight of that truth, that what we have been given in Christ is solid and secure, that would transform the way that we walk through suffering, wouldn't it? It would transform the way that we experience difficulties. As Paul says in Romans 8, 18, if I can... Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's part of the truth that Peter is, is giving to us here. Nothing that we experience now compares with the glory that is to come, and nothing we experience now can tarnish the glory that is to come. But Peter doesn't actually stop there. That's not the end of the letter. It could be, but it's not. Peter wants us to see more. He, he wants us to, to see more that will cause us to rejoice greatly, as he says in verse 6. You see, it's not just that our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. Peter says suffering can actually play a positive role in our salvation. And that's really where the second truth comes into play. Our salvation is tried by our suffering. So the first truth was our salvation is not tarnished by our suffering. The second truth, our salvation is tried by our suffering. Look with me once more at verses 6 and 7. Peter says that uh, in this salvation we have, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if we wanted to outline verses 3 through 7, we could break it up this way. We could say in verses 3 through 5, what Peter is really focusing on, what he's looking at, is our salvation. Right? He's drawing our eyes up to see what we have in Christ. And now in verses 6 and 7, he's, he's looking back down again. Having looked up and seeing our salvation, he's now looking with fresh eyes around us to go 
right into the heart of our suffering and our difficulties and, and to connect these two things together. What does our salvation say to our suffering? There's a couple of things that Peter notes about suffering. The first thing that Peter mentions is that our suffering is temporary. We may be grieved by various trials, he says, verse 6, but it is only for a little while. I love the way Thomas Watson put it. He said, affliction may be lasting, but it's not everlasting. And again, that's a great comfort. If I can just use a, an ordinary and a very recent illustration from my own stage of life. Um, last month, I finally finished my final final of my final finals week, um, which felt really good. And uh, whether that was last month for you or you're in the midst of school or you're many years from school, think back to that time when you had finals week and you had all your exams that were coming up and your papers to write and just lots of things to do. And it's easy to be stressed. It's easy to be overwhelmed. Uh, but what can help you kind of get through that crunch? Well, oftentimes, one of the things that encourages you is the recognition that this is not going to last forever. This is, this is it's one week, it's one part of the semester, and uh, one way or another, by the end of the semester, it, it'll all be done. The, the fact that that trial is temporary can help. It can help you to push through. But there's another truth that Peter mentions here as well. Our trials are temporary, and that in and of itself is an encouragement, but he says they're also necessary. 1 Peter 1.6 says that God brings us through these trials if necessary. And verse 7 adds that we experience these trials for a reason, so that our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So do you see what Peter is saying here? He's, he's recognizing the very real pain that these Christians experienced, the very real pain that you and I often experience. We experience things that hurt. They feel like you're walking through fire. That image grabs us because it's reflective often of our own experience. Peter's not ignoring that fact, but he's bringing us into another fact, a more fundamental fact, the fact that our pain actually has a purpose. If I can go back to the picture of finals week, um, you can be encouraged as a student to know that it's going to end, but if you're a wise student, you'll also be encouraged by the fact that, at least in the case of most of your professors, they're not actually trying to make you suffer just to make you suffer right? They are giving you assignments, they're giving you exams that they think will help you to grow as a person, to learn what you need to learn, to be equipped for what you need to be equipped for. And if that's true of, of human teachers, how much more is that true of our all-wise, all-powerful, all-loving Heavenly Father who gives you exactly the test that you need in exactly the way you need it at exactly the right time for a reason? So that you might grow, so that you might mature, so that you might flourish. God delights to use trials to save and to sanctify His people. So our suffering is temporary, it's necessary, and what it's necessary for is this. Our suffering is purifying. 
and glorifying as well. That's what verse 7 really focuses on. Peter uses an image in verse 7, which I've already referenced. He says that our faith is like gold. Now, kids, have you ever seen, a, maybe on TV or something, a picture of a, of a bar of gold? And it's just perfectly formed, and it's shiny, and it's bright, and it's beautiful, pure gold. That is not what gold looks like when you dig it up from the ground, right? Uh, when you get gold out of the ground, it's not a pure, perfect brick, uh, it's, it's, it has its own shape and it's covered with all sorts of other dirt and debris and minerals and everything else. So how do you get from that to a pure brick of gold? Well, you, you heat it up so much that the gold melts into liquid, all the impurity is burned away, and then it's poured to be shaped into this perfect, beautiful brick. Now, I imagine if gold had could feel things, that that would not feel very good, right? To be boiled down into hot liquid and had everything else stripped away. But that is how gold becomes pure. And Peter says, that's exactly like what God is doing with our faith. That he puts us through the fire. He'll turn up the heat, not to be cruel, not to be capricious, but out of compassionate love and a desire for us to be pure people, part of a pure people for His possession. That's what Titus 2, verses 11 through 15 makes clear. So when you're going through trial, maybe you're passed over promotion or privilege because you're holding fast to your faith. Maybe you're suffering for faithfulness in ways that people don't even see. If you're a single person, you may be striving to be faithful to God's command to only seek a godly, mature spouse. And you've held fast to that, and the result has seemed to be that all the rest of your friends are married and you're still single. And you think, why am I suffering for doing the right thing? What could God possibly be doing? Well, we can't say exactly what God is doing in each person in each situation. It could be for one person that he's trying to help you let go of idols that would tether your heart to this world. It could be that he's trying to develop patience and virtue and perseverance in your life. But whatever particular purpose God has in your life with your suffering, the overarching purpose is always the same. God is using your suffering, your pain, to make you a pure person for his own possession, to glorify his name, and to do you good. Just like that gold is formed into a brick, First Peter 2 will use the imagery of bricks and stones as well and say that God is shaping each one of us to be the stone that is needed in building up his kingdom, his church, chiseling away what needs to be done away with and shaping us to be perfectly fitted to play our role in the body of Christ and the kingdom of God. So our suffering is not only temporary and necessary, it's also purifying and glorifying. And here's the picture Peter gives us as we come to a close. He points us to the end. The apocalypse Verse 7, when Jesus is revealed, he says, when our living hope is fully and finally realized, then our tried and true faith 
will be put on display for the glory of God. Now, now think about this with me, because I often don't think about this. Do you, do you meditate on the fact that part of what God is doing in walking you through trials and in purifying your faith is to make something beautiful so that when Jesus comes again, the whole world will see what God has done in you in purifying your faith and give glory to Jesus at the last day. So mom, when you are at home with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten kids, however many, and you are sacrificing and you are suffering and you're being sanctified, but no one else necessarily sees what you're doing. No one else is singing your praises. God is at work. Not just for you, not just for your kids, but he's actually making you a beautiful person who looks like Jesus, who has a faith that is more and more pure and more and more precious. And one day when Christ comes again, that faith will be put on display, not for your glory, but as your sacrifice of praise to the glorious one, to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That blows my mind. And that's true for every Christian who suffers in faith and in faithfulness. So as you find yourself in situations or in seasons of life where you are suffering for your faith, don't give in to frustration. Don't give in to despair. Don't question the purposes of God. Examine your heart and ask God these questions. Lord, Will you use this trial to make me more pure? And Lord, will you use this trial to make the gospel more beautiful? I promise you, God will answer those questions. And then watch patiently for God to answer those prayers in his perfect time. And it may not be till Christ comes again, but it will, that answer will come. And so in these uncertain times... What Peter offers us in this passage is something certain and rich and beautiful. He reminds us of the salvation that we have received. And more than that, he helps us to see how that salvation connects with our suffering. Our suffering cannot tarnish our salvation. Rather, our suffering is a means that God uses to try our salvation, to prove that it is real and to purify us for the day of glory. So let me leave you with this. When you find yourself suffering for your faith in a faithless world, remember the faithfulness of God. Remember what He has already done for you. And in you. He has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has prepared an inheritance for you in heaven that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. And He has promised to keep and to guard you Himself for that day of salvation. And He sovereignly superintends over every suffering you experience. And he says, I will use these things for your good and for my glory. When we walk in the light of these truths, we'll be able to join Peter and look at suffering and look at persecution and look at hardship and turn our voices to praise. 
and say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have such great privileges, that we have such a sure salvation, that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you have blessed us not just by freeing us from the penalty of hell, but by bringing us into the glories of heaven and giving us a salvation that's not contingent or probable, but is certain and sure. And that not even the sufferings or the persecutions or the gates of hell themselves could triumph against. Lord, help us to remember this in our pain. Help us to take these truths that we know from the Scriptures and to apply them in faith to the difficulties of our lives. Be with us, Lord, now as we continue to worship You and as we see in bread and wine laid before us the certainty of our salvation, that Christ gave up His body, Christ spilled His blood, Christ died and was buried, but that Christ was raised again and that He sits in heaven, enthroned, and communes with us and blesses us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.